Welcome to the public morality. The First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or the press, or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Simply stated, the First Amendment is a bedrock of American democracy. Assuming freedom of conscience is also an inalienable right, then free speech in particular makes representatives accountable while also necessary for the discovery of truth. Given former President Donald Trump's legal defense team is apparently citing First Amendment speech protections against charges the former president tried to steal the 2020 election, we at the public rally want to return to the topic of free speech. What does it say? And what does it protect? Joining me to discuss free speech protections, we welcome back to the public rally, American University law professor Stephen Wormiel. Professor Stephen Wormiel, welcome to the public rally. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let, let's begin uh, with this conversation uh, by having you define speech protections as it is outlined in the First Amendment, what does it say and what does it protect? So what it says is pretty simple, but the Supreme Court uh, over a period of about 100 years has made it fairly complicated. Um, it simply says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Um, and and if we all agreed what that meant, Byron, you and I would only need about five minutes for this conversation. <laughs> um, but uh, that that's uh, not the case. Um, so, you know, what is freedom of speech? What is speech? Is speech expressive conduct? Is speech just spoken words? Is speech written material? Um, um, all of those are, are speech images. All of those are things that the Supreme Court has wrestled with over the past hundred years. What the Supreme Court has essentially done is say, somewhat arbitrarily in my opinion, that there are certain forms of expression that are not protected under the First Amendment. There are some that we know very well. Um, obscenity, speech that is obscenity, is not protected under the First Amendment. Now, that one itself is quite complicated because obscenity is a legal term of art um, that has a three-part definition defined by the Supreme Court. So it's not everything that is sexually explicit or that's a four-letter word. Um, it is it is material that falls within this very specific three part definition. Child pornography is not protected. Um, what the court defines as true threats, words that might put an individual in imminent fear of their life, are not protected. Um, fighting words, words that 
are designed to be so insulting as to cause a fight, as to cause a breach of the peace, are not protected. And the one that maybe is most relevant to the controversies going on today um, is incitement. The court says that incitement to lawless action is not protected by the First Amendment. Everything else, in one way or another, with lots of additional complicated wrinkles, where the speech takes place, you know, what the nature of government regulation is, um, and so on, all of that is relevant, but everything else is at least arguably protected speech. Uh, we, we began this conversation, you, you, you said that if um, that what could have been a five-minute conversation um, yeah. is, is several-century conversation. Um, and would that also include the fact that the Constitution never gives a definitive definition of speech? That's, that's correct. Um, you know, what the, the First Amendment was ratified as part of the Bill of Rights. Um, be, became part of the Constitution in 1791. We have to decide what authors, James Madison and others who wrote the Bill of Rights, thought speech meant in 1791, and are we limited to that? Um, that would be a severely limiting proposition because obviously they didn't have the Internet, they didn't have social media. Um, they, you know, their, their ability to print and disseminate printed word was relatively limited compared to what we have. They certainly didn't have television and radio. So we're talking about a, uh, you know, 230 year evolution, um, of, of what we mean by speech. Um, that, that informs the conversation and informs what the Supreme Court has wrestled with over the, the last century when it has been active in defining free speech. Uh, in addition to that expansive, ever-expanding notion uh, of speech, um, how important uh, is an individual's intention when determining if specific speech receives constitutional protection? Um, you know, as you and I have joked before, when we've been together, the answer to every question in law school is it depends. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's true here. In, in the, what I said was, I think, the most relevant and important aspect of free speech debate today, uh, the incitement standard, intent is crucial. Um, the Supreme Court, in, in the case I'm sure we're going to spend some time on, Brandenburg versus Ohio, a mm -hmm. 19, 1969 decision, basically said, you know, speech that may lead to unlawful conduct is is protected speech unless Right, it's protected unless the speaker um, incites people to imminent, meaning fairly immediate, lawless action 
in circumstances in which that action is, that lawlessness is likely to occur. And the speaker pretty much has to have intended those consequences. So, uh, you know, what I say to my law school students in, in the First Amendment class is, I could give the most rabble-rousing, inflammatory speech standing alone in my bathroom looking in the mirror. And my words may be the same words that I give an hour later to a crowd, but words I used when I was by myself have no intent to inflame anybody. It's just me standing there. So intent can be a critical question or a critical element um, um, of, of um, how we determine whether something is protected speech. The same thing might be said of, of true threats that, that the speaker has to, has to know that the words the speaker is using are uh, of such a nature as to, to cause somebody to be in, in fear of their life or, or, or safety. It seems to me, um, I guess, rather ironic, just given the expansive nature and the evolution of, of speech, um, that there has not, there was not um, any, speech was not front and center before the Supreme Court until we reached the 20th century. Any thoughts on why that long gap, say from 1788, 1790, until what, 1919, there was really no landmark speech cases. There are, that's correct. There are, there are very few. There are some speech cases um, involving um, slavery related speech. Um, it, there were um, some efforts in some slave states before the Civil War to prohibit anti-slavery speech and to shut down anti-slavery newspapers. Um, and, and the Supreme Court never really, I mean, the, the, basically the First Amendment didn't really protect those anti-slavery publishers. Supreme Court didn't really issue any major landmark rulings on that subject. One of the critical things is, uh, without getting into too much detail about this, is that the First Amendment, as originally written, was only a limitation on the power of Congress to interfere with freedom of speech. It didn't limit the power of states to interfere with freedom of speech. And the Supreme Court didn't change that until 1925, 1927. So the, the quick sequence is 1791, the Bill of Rights becomes part of the Constitution officially. Until about 19, well, in 1868, the 14th Amendment is ratified as part of the Constitution. The 14th Amendment includes uh, provision saying that the states 
may not interfere with the due or deprive people of due process of law. Um, they may not take away anyone's liberty without due process of law. Um, in the late 1800s after that, um, lawyers started to try to persuade the Supreme Court that the 14th Amendment meant that the Bill of Rights should be applied to the states as a limitation on what state governments could do, not just as a limitation on what the federal government could do. The Supreme Court rejected that argument until 1925, when for the first time it said, assuming for purposes of this argument, that the First Amendment applies to the state. And two years later, in 1927, said it's now beyond question that the First Amendment applies to the state. That change brought us a ton of new free speech cases because now you were challenging what state and local governments could do respecting free speech, not just what Congress could do. But before we get both feet firmly planted in the 20th century, I want to keep us in the 18th century just for a few more uh, seconds, if you if you bear with me. Um, 1798, President John Adams signs the Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, from my vantage point of the 21st century, this seems to be a clear violation of the First Amendment. And my question to you is, do you think the absence of a challenge um, to the Alien Sedition Acts um, is tied to judicial review per Marbury v. Madison had not been established yet? I think there's definitely a connection there, but I, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's that the role of the court, as you're as you're describing, in passing judgment on the constitutionality of federal laws, was not clear at all in 1798. We also didn't have the the litigation culture that we have today. And I mean today other than thinking about how much it's going to cost to pay lawyers, we routinely say, you can't do that. I'm going to sue. Um, and, and that was not the case in 1798. We didn't have that kind of automatic uh, resort to the courts as the obvious and ultimate problem solver. Um, and so, you know, much of what happened with the, the alien sedition act was, basically viewed as predominantly to be worked out in the political arena. And, and it was, I mean, the election of 1800 saw the government change hands. Um, you know, Jefferson replaced Adams. Jefferson pardoned many of the people who were prosecuted under the uh, Alien and Sedition Act. Jefferson's party controlled the Congress. And so he got the Congress to um, refund the fines paid by the people who were prosecuted under the Alien and Sedition Act. And then Congress didn't really re-up the law. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not saying that's the way things need to go or ought to go, but it's a different model. The political process kind of worked it out itself. 
without needing the Supreme Court ultimately to to resolve the the conflict. Uh, Schenck versus U.S. 1919, one of the landmark Supreme Court free speech cases. This is where um, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes gives a two-part test for the limits of, of speech where he reasoned the First Amendment doesn't protect someone that falsely yells fire in a crowded theater or something that presents a clear and present danger. Could you provide some background on Schenck as well as the importance of Holmes's opinion still has um, on our contemporary understanding of free speech protections. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And if I can deflect for 10 seconds. Sure. And just say that in 1964, the Supreme Court went out of its way in a famous speech and libel decision called New York Times versus Sullivan to say, just in case there's any doubt in anybody's mind, the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798 would not pass constitutional muster under the First Amendment today. So, you know, it's, there's sort of an irony there, I suppose, that it took 165 years but, but just to be clear, the court did eventually think it was important to repudiate the Alien and Sedition Act and make sure that nobody thought that could still possibly be good law. You never know when some enterprising aide to the president will say, hey, this was never, this was never challenged. You can do it. <laughs> Scary thought, right? Uh, so back to Schenck. Um, Schenck is, is one of the, the foundational cases I've mentioned a couple of times, and so have you, a hundred years of Supreme Court decision making. And so it really all began um, in connection to World War One. And Schenck is one of the first major Supreme Court free speech decisions in 1919. Um, Charles Schenck and, and another defendant were members of the Socialist Party. And they believed that World War I was wrong, but their main message was that the mandatory draft, the conscription um, of um, young men back then, um, was illegal. That it was, they, they basically equated it to slavery, to involuntary servitude. And they argued that that violated the 13th Amendment's prohibition on slavery. And so they distributed literature, pamphlets, that basically urged people not to give in, not to register for the draft. Um, it's always curious to me when I think about that case or teach that case. And I, and I think this raises a really interesting point about what our perception is of the power of speech and the power of the printed word, it's interesting to me that the government was worried enough about Schenck's effort to get people to resist registering for the, for the military that they needed to prosecute him for violating the Espionage Act. 
right? I mean, picture big, powerful government of the United States being concerned that this guy is going to make a dent in our ability to have a working military to fight in World War I. Um, and, and so I, you know, I'm not drawing a conclusion there. I just think it's an interesting thing to think about is, is when does the spoken or written word have the potential to have that kind of disruptive effect on something, on a government program? Well, that actually leads me, it's a perfect segue to, to, to the next question, is when, when we examine, as we started the, so the, the expanding understanding of speech, uh, can we divorce the court's rulings on speech from the public mood at a particular time? Good, very good question. And my, my short answer is, I think, no, we cannot. Divorce it. This was, this was in the context of World War One, even though by the time the court decided it, it was 1919, but, um, the, the prosecution was in 1917 and, uh, or 18 and, you know, still very much in the context of the nation supporting the, the U.S. fighting in the Great War. Um, the government being concerned about the, the socialist threat to destabilize the, you know, the democratic government and, and so on. So, no, I think then and now it's very difficult to separate, um, free speech rulings from, uh, context, from, from societal attitudes. Uh, and, you know, there are famous polls where, I don't know, I haven't seen one lately, but, you know, somebody, somebody reads you a particular piece of text that says, Congress shall make no law bridging freedom of speech. Uh, you know, would you agree with that text or not? And a high percentage of people say, no, that sounds really radical. Um, so, I think context matters and public attitude matters. And the court is not always being directly responsive to that, but, but there, you know, there are times when I think it influences it. And the, I know we're going to get to the 1950s and the McCarthy era, the, the anti-communist era and the Cold War era. Um, I think the court was undoubtedly influenced by the nation's fear of of communism in the 1950s when it decided to free speech case. Well, I, I was going, well, I was going, well, the way I was going to ask that question, and I'm glad you brought it up, was that when you think about, we talked about this gap um, from the 18th century to the 20th century. And so, so it's beginning of the 20th century that we start to have these speech cases. It seems to me, and I, again, I am not an attorney, um, as I, like to say the only bar I've passed is my local tavern. But it seems to me that the majority of the landmark cases, Supreme Court cases on speech, even though the First Amendment says Congress shall not abridge, um, have gone with, sided with the federal government. And um, I think we see that a lot in the 50s. 
uh, Whitney versus California, 1927, still operating on that clear and present danger test. Your thoughts, sir? The, the, the first six major First Amendment decisions, starting with Schenck, which we can go back to in 1919, and working up to Whitney versus California in 1927, there are three federal prosecutions, and then there are three different state prosecutions. And in all six, the Supreme Court upholds the convictions. It's, it's like the justices are having a public conversation in their opinions about the importance of speech, when it ought to be protected and when not. But while that conversation is taking place, let's keep all these bad people in jail. Um, and, and, you know, future, future generations of speakers will benefit from our, um, debate. But, um, Schenck, Browork, Debs. Deb, Eugene Debs, yeah. Yeah, Whitney. I mean, think about Eugene, you know, Eugene Debs ran for president from prison. He was in prison for his speech, much like Shen. Um, and he got like a million votes from. I think, I think he got more than that. I think he got quite a yeah, few. Was, <laughs> right. So, so you know, it, it's almost like two things are happening simultaneously. We, we got to. We got to make sure that these people aren't going to jeopardize the security of the government of the United States or our ability to fight a war um, and, and undermine our democracy. But at the same time, um, Holmes and then Justice Brandeis and Justice Cardozo are having this, uh, this conversation out loud. You know, Holmes, as, as you described in Schenck, gives us one standard and some of his pals um, and, and, and some of his colleagues a few years later think his standard allows for too much prosecution of speech. And they begin kind of working on him to to you know to get him to see that his standard was too harsh and then we see it in an evolution holmes first begins to raise some questions about his own clear and present danger test and then the mantle passes to brandeis to to carry on raising those questions and so this late 19 teens and 1920s conversation leads to the modern thinking about free speech, but it takes a long time. And during much of that time, the government continues to win prosecutions for speech. So, you know, you, we've talked, we, you know, touched on this, but, as speech goes along in the 50s, uh, are we still operating where it's still sided? Now, there's a new fear, and that new fear, we're in, a, we're in a Cold War era now, that new fear is communism and the communist threat. So is it not until 69 
that um, the court takes a different tack other than predominantly siding um, with government on a historical? It, uh, it, it changes. It changes in the 50s. I mean, Brandenburg is sort of a defining uh, moment. You know, if you were looking for the moment that fireworks went off, um, because we we have now dramatically changed our view of when speech can be prosecuted, Brandenburg might be that moment. But there's a there's a shift um, after McCarthy dies, and as the the communist, the perception of the communist threat begins to fade a little bit. And we can talk about a couple of those. Um, let me go back to Schenck for a minute because I think it frames um, an important part of this conversation. I was describing a minute ago about how the, the court seemed to be engaging in a public um, thought process about speech. But let me be clear, the clear and present danger test dominated, as, as you asked and suggested, Byron, the clear and present danger test really dominated um, from 1919 really to the end of the 60s. And I will add that it still has a major impact. Um, if you if you were to survey the American people and say, what's the standard for measuring freedom of speech? They're not going to tell you imminent likelihood of lawless action from Brandenburg. They're going to tell you clear and present danger test. Um, there are even lower court judges who still use the large the jargon of clear and present danger. Even though I would argue, I don't know if I'm in the in the minority or majority about this, but I would argue that the clear and present danger test as a literal matter is no longer part of our First Amendment analysis. And and it really was dispatched in the sixties and seventies, but it keeps showing up. It, it's you can't kill it. Um, and, and it continues to influence courts and debates and lawyers and legislators. Um, and, and so, you know, a hundred years later, the clear and present danger test still is highly important and highly influential, even though I don't think the Supreme Court really uses it particularly. Um, just real quick, um, as a final tell, in the 1920 election, Eugene Debs got 919,799 votes. From, from prison. From prison. 3% of, right. of the population. Right. And he ran for president like five times or something. Um, you know, this is the guy who's sitting in prison for his speech. The government prosecuted him for, for you know, basically... Um, undermining the war effort and undermining the draft and uh, in violation of the Espionage Act. Um, and, and he's sitting in prison and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people are voting for him as the political leader. That's not, you know, that's not how we ought to be thinking about our heritage of free speech. 
you've you've touched on it a couple times and um talk about the significance i would say there's a social significance judicial significance and a political significance to brandenburg versus ohio sure so so building up to brandenburg just because i alluded to this earlier the the i suppose what i would call the low point of the court's protection for speech is at the height of the McCarthy era, a case you alluded to, Dennis versus the United States, decided in 1951, where the court basically allows the the conviction of leaders of the Communist Party of the United States, um, basically because they were members of the Communist Party of the United States. They were not prosecuted for specific words or acts. They were prosecuted on the premise that the Communist Party of the United States was committed to the overthrow of the government of the United States. And that was good enough for the court. Later in the 50s, the court modified Dennis significantly and basically said you had to show that somebody actually subscribed actively was engaged in subscribing to the philosophy of the Communist Party wasn't enough that they were a member of the party. So that was the first step. Um, The case I mentioned earlier where the court repudiated the Alien and Sedition Act, New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964, is really a landmark because what it says is that individuals in our democracy should be free to criticize their government, even to mock their government, even to make mistakes in their criticism of government without being held liable for damages, unless they did it deliberately or recklessly. Um, but but it, it sort of recognizes, as the court never had up to that point, the value of um, debate and, and um, public criticism um, it, to, to the way of a democracy works. And that you can't really be a functioning democracy as a society without that. So I think that paved the way for Brandenburg. Brandenburg, Clarence Brandenburg was a Ku Klux Klan leader in Ohio. Um, And he staged a rally in a field in the middle of nowhere. Um, There was nobody else around other than his Klan members. There was no town nearby, you know, that, that, that had sight of the rally. There were no homes nearby that could see the rally. They, at the rally, they burned a cross and said, you know, a fairly wide range of anti-racist, of racist and anti-Semitic comments. And Clarence Brandenburg invited a TV station to come film this event. Um, and the state of Ohio prosecuted him for kind of advocating the use of force um, to 
influence public policy or influence the laws and the 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 way government was running in Ohio. And he was convicted. And the Supreme Court overturned his conviction. The Supreme Court basically said, and, and this is where the, in my view, the Brandenburg test really eclipses the clear and present danger test. The Brandenburg language says that you, to punish someone for their speech, it has to be, the speech has to be directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to invite or produce such action. So if you parse that, you know, I have to be intending my speech to cause someone else to engage in lawless action imminently, not six months from now, but imminently, and in circumstances in which it's likely to happen. So the, the classic image would be I'm standing in front of, a, of an angry mob, and I know that this mob is angry and ready to explode. And I, you know, my speech basically says, let's explode. Let's go do whatever it is they're angry about. Um, and they do. If I participate in the riot that ensues, you can prosecute me and them for the damages caused by the riot. But the question before you get there is, can you prosecute me for my speech for causing the riot? That's the incitement issue. And the Supreme Court says you can if the circumstances are such that your speech caused imminent lawless action and that you knew it was likely to occur. So again, back to my standing in front of the mirror in my bathroom, if I give the same speech there as I give to the riot, they can't prosecute me for the speech I gave in front of the mirror because there's no likelihood that my speech is going to bring about imminent lawless action. There's nobody there to hear me. But if I give the same speech in front of an angry mob, then that speech may lose its First Amendment protection. Did the era of the 60s influence the Brandenburg decision in your view? I'm thinking specifically you have a civil rights movement, you have, you know, feminism, second wave feminism, the anti-Vietnam protests, Etc. So, so th does that climate, in terms of our understanding of speech and protests and the right to assemble and uh, address government, is all of that at play in Vandenberg, in your opinion? Yes, um, I, I think that the court had become sensitized to the importance of protests. They, you know, the justices didn't always like anti-Vietnam protests and, and the justices didn't always like protests that were aimed at, at them. I mean, the, you know, complaints about their about Brown versus Board of Education, complaints about their school prayer decisions. But I think they had become quite conscious of the fact that protests had to be an essential part of a, 
of a functioning democracy and that you wanted to be a careful to allow rabble-rousing, emotional, volatile speech, um, you know, as long as it didn't cross the line to cause people to, to engage in illegal action, in, in destruction or in, um, you know, seizing private property or seizing government buildings. Um, um, and yeah, I think that was a very important point. One other thing about Brandenburg, and this is not, I think, widely known, um, but I, as you know, wrote a biography of Justice Brennan, and this is, came up in some research I was able to do with him. The Brandenburg opinion is not signed by an individual justice. It's what's called a procurium, which means for the court. And the reason for that is the opinion was being written by Justice Abe Fortas. Hmm. And Justice Abe Fortas wrote the first draft. And then for because of a financial scandal, he resigned from the court in May 1961. What's not widely known is Brennan took over the opinion, which was then released a month later in June 1969. Fortis's draft said um, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and and presenting a clear and present danger that such action will occur. When Brennan took over the opinion, and this goes to my point about Brandenburg wanting to repudiate that standard. When Brennan took over the opinion, he took out the clear and present danger language and made it um, likely to incite or produce such action. He wanted the clear and present danger language to go away. Um, it, I don't think it worked, but it, it, it isn't present in Brandenburg. He took the clear and present danger language out of Fortis. Well, it seems to me that the court, by the time we get to Brandenburg, given the trajectory of speech that you've articulated in our conversation, it seems to me the court by 1969 is trying to weave together a lot of things. There's there's obviously the Holmes clear and present danger opinion. There is um, Louis Brandeis' dissent in Whitney. There's a lower court decision by Judge Leonard Hand in Massey Publishing, 1917, that the Espionage Act doesn't prohibit the publication distribution of cartoons by mail. Um, there's just a lot of moving parts that the court is trying uh, to weave together um, into a cohesive narrative. I mean, how, how do you see that? Well, I, I think that's right, and I'll add to it because it's, a, you know, it's at the same time that the court was wrestling with other free speech issues. The, the court from 1957 until 1973 tried to find a way to come up with a workable definition of obscenity. What kinds of sexually explicit material could be prosecuted, criminally prosecuted, because it had no First Amendment protection, 
and what kinds of material couldn't be prosecuted um, because it had First Amendment protection. And that's all going on at the same time. Um, in the in the 50s and 60s, the court is wrestling with loyalty oaths. Professors at state universities are, are you know, being told they can't keep their job unless they take a loyalty oath that was part of the, you know, a legacy of the McCarthy era. Um, the court deals, the court's dealing with student free speech rights. The court's dealing with burning draft cards. And is that a, an acceptable form of expression? Um, you know, the, the sixties and beyond brings about just a vast uh, and growing array of different kinds of speech and different kinds of expression and therefore different kinds of speech issue. I think the court in Brandenburg was trying to take this universe of political um, speech and say, here, you know, here finally is, is a workable line. Um, speech that you know, is, is going to produce a riot speech that's going to bring about illegal action um, is, is not protected. It doesn't really contribute any value to dialogue in our society. But, but we want that to be a very fine line where a speaker can walk right up to that point. A speaker can say, I hate the government of the United States. I hate the president of the United States. I think our democracy is the worst system in the history of the world. And, and all of that is protected speech. Um, and I think that's what the court was trying to do. And, and it, it does sort of try to unify what the concerns were about the clear and present danger test. It does Brennan's Brennan's New York Times versus Sullivan opinion in 1964, combined with Brandenburg, kind of adopts the the Brandeis vision of a marketplace of ideas. Holmes and Brandeis came to that point of view that rather than censor speech, we give everybody the opportunity to, to speak. You refute speech that you don't like um, by speaking and giving your point of view. And I think the court's trying to keep that in play as well. So it really is kind of a defining moment. With, with all of that uh, said, how might one view former President Trump's uh, defense uh, does it violate the clear and present danger standard? Does it rise to false yelling, fire in a crowded theater, or might it be protected using the Brandenburg threshold um, because the speech is ultimately abstract in nature? How, how, how do you see that as a defense? I mean, which one of those strands? If the, I mean, maybe one I did not mention. I mean, I think it's a complicated question. So, so let me lay down one premise that we haven't said explicitly yet, which is 
as part of defining the line where speech is protected and isn't protected. And this is a very controversial proposition, I think, in our society today. You asked me earlier about how societal attitudes affect I'm not sure that, that much of society accepts this premise, but the premise is that we accept a tremendous amount of speech that may be offensive to people, but is nevertheless protected because it doesn't violate one of those standards. It's not incitement or it's not obscene um, or it doesn't present a true threat. So, for example, people, people say, oh, well, you can't engage in hate speech. That's actually not true. You can engage in what people think of as hate speech. I can make a racist comment. I wouldn't, and I don't, and I would condemn it. But it's not illegal. It doesn't lose its protection simply because it's offensive. And so I think that's an important point to understand that many criticisms of Trump's speech are because it, it's crazy, it's offensive, it's it's saying things that are totally false, it's saying things that he knows to be false. That doesn't mean it loses its First Amendment protection. Where it loses its First Amendment protection is where he tries to get people to put together um, phony slates of electors to take the place of legitimate elected slates of electors, where he tries to persuade the Georgia Secretary of State to change the outcome of, elect of the election by finding votes that don't exist. I mean, you, you, you're, when your speech is um, in engaging in getting people to do illegal things, whether it satisfies the Brandenburg incitement test or, or some other test, speech that encourages people to engage in illegal action um, is not within the protection of the First Amendment. And I think that's where Trump's defense of his speech um, breaks down. Um, he hasn't actually been indicted for incitement, but he's been indicted for things that sound a lot like incitement, encouraging elected, encouraging public officials to engage in fraudulent actions and illegal actions. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of the, I think the critical distinction. Another, uh, ironic moment, at least at least to me, is, in my view, um, the notion of free speech that is protected by the First Amendment was not something high on former President Trump's list, but he's seeking protect First Amendment protections when it comes to his speech. So my, my, my question, though, is can the protections against establishing religion or protecting its free exercise or protecting speech or assembly and the rights to petition government, can they be parsed out or, or, 
or is the First Amendment just those things are just sort of inextricably linked? So you can't have really can't have one without the other and still have a First Amendment. You know, there are differing views about that. Um, and I'll give you mine. But but just in fairness. There are many critics of the, of the court and the First Amendment that say that the court has forced us to put up with too much garbage, with speech that ought not to matter, with speech that has no value, with speech that is offensive to people, with speech that targets people based on their sexual orientation or based on their race or based on their religion or or other things. Um, I think the court's approach, and I sort of share this, is this marketplace. I don't I don't really think the marketplace is a great analogy anymore. But the problem becomes who do you want to decide, define what speech you don't want to permit. We're seeing that now in Florida. I mean, Governor DeSantis has a legislature that's willing to, seems like is willing to do anything he wants. And so he says, I don't like this speech. I don't like this part of our education system. I don't like these books. And he gets the legislature to ban them. That's the dilemma, right? Do you want majoritarian values to be able to say this is out, this is out, this isn't acceptable? Or do you want a society that puts up with controversial or offensive speech because having government decide what's acceptable and what isn't isn't an acceptable answer? That's sort of where we are, I think, today. I'm not sure if that's answering your question. Well, um, every time we've had you on, you always answer my questions. And so it's always an honor to be in conversation with you. Uh, Professor Stephen Wormiel, I want to thank you so much, sir, for joining me once again on the public ground. As always, we, we much appreciated your insight. Thanks for having me, Baron. I'm, I, I think this won't be the last time we discuss this subject. No, 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 it, 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 it will definitely not be the last, the last time. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.